Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. So without further ado, David Cronenberg. <laughs> Okay, and I guess what I'd like to do is start, I'd like to use Naked Lunch as a way to um, talk about your entire body of work. And I was surprised at how um, much you kept the spirit of the book, but really made it into your film. And um, the very first film you made, Transfer, I uh, just watched, and is set in a snowy field that re immediately reminded me of the ending of Naked Lunch. Mm -hmm. And has the one of the characters is a psychiatrist who flees into exile to become an artist. And there were echoes even in the student film of, of Naked Lunch. Um, so I don't know. So I wanted to really start by uh, start with the ending of Naked Lunch as a way to get back into talking about all of your films. Um, and the the first thing I want to ask you about was just the idea of um, anexia and what that means. The oh. idea of the artist in exile. Oh well, anexia is Canada, of course. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, all, all Canadians recognize it when they see that that scene. And, uh, at, you know, next year in Anexia. But the sequel will take place <laughs> in Anexia. Um, you've, you've said a number of interesting things over the years about being a Canadian artist, what it means to be Canadian. Well, for most Canadians, um, most Canadians define themselves as not being American. I mean, that's, that's the truth. Canada was formed in defense against the 13 colonies, and I think that continues. The idea... If you, the first thing a Canadian is going to say when, if a Frenchman says, well, what's the difference? Is, well, we're not Americans. That's what, that's what they say. <laughs> and, uh, and we have a very, um, uh, a very uh, ambivalent love-hate relationship with the U.S., which most Americans are completely and wonderfully oblivious to, <laughs> uh, which is one of the reasons for the hate, you understand. <laughs> um, and um, uh, it's... Uh, so I think that's... I mean... Marshall McLuhan said that the, one of the reasons that he was able to make such trenchant philosophical observations on, on American media was because he did not uh, exist in the middle of it, that he was, as he put it, in a backwater of culture, that is Toronto, and, uh, and that he was therefore able to observe America from that strange, ambivalent standpoint that all Canadians have. So um, uh, I think there's a sense that all Canadians, in a way, are, are outsiders vis-a-vis -vis American culture, very affected by it, can't get away from it, are constantly trying to define what is uniquely Canadian in, in, in a sort of a vacuum, in a limbo. And my argument always is that uh, to consider Canada without considering the U.S. is actually an impossibility right from the very beginning. So this, this does not make me popular in certain circles, you understand. And then was there, uh, when you were interested in, um, in Burroughs and when you were... Um writing fiction and were influenced by Burroughs earlier in your career, before you were making films. Um, Burroughs himself is, is, sees himself as an outsider to American culture. And I just wonder what the real He, he does and he doesn't. I mean, that's why he's sort of a Canadian. You know, he has the same <laughs> ambivalent relationship to America, uh, but, but from within. I mean, right now he's living in Lawrence, Kansas, which I think is geographically is about the absolute center of America. Uh, and yet, in order to, to, to do his art, he felt he had to get away from America. And, of course, Paul Bowles is an American writer who still lives in Tangier, and, and yet he's definitely an American writer. It, 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 in a way, it's a traditional artistic 
paradox. Uh, James Joyce had to get out of Ireland to, to, be, to be Irish. He had to live in Paris. You know? So it's, it's not unique to America, I'm saying, but for Canadians it is a strange, a strange almost a, a part of our culture that we are outside America. Um, what was the influence of, of Naked Lunch and Burroughs um, early, early in your career? Because a film um, like Stereo feels very much Burroughs' influence. And if you could, I'd just like to well, know. it's invisible to me, or, or in retrospect, of course it isn't, but I've been doing a lot of um, interviews for Naked Lunch lately. I did 36 in three days in London, <laughs> 12 a day, half an hour each. Uh, you, don't, you don't get up. You know, there's a chair and somebody gets into it. Um, and um, uh, and what it does is it forces you to be analytical about things that you really did totally intuitively. And in a way, telling journalists that you have that you, you were influenced by William Burroughs is handing them a sword, which they then plunge directly into your guts um, <laughs> and go so far. I had there was one journalist who's kind of a friend who said, uh, you know, it's possible that without William Burroughs, Cronenberg would be bereft of imagery. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know what that means, actually. I mean, I, he's basically talking about plagiarism, isn't he? <laughs> um, but the point is that hundreds and thousands of artists have read Burroughs and been influenced by him, and it, it doesn't necessarily manifest itself in a very directly mm -hmm. observable way. And really, I'm, so going back, I mean, when I w started making films, I wasn't thinking about Burroughs or literature at all. In fact, it was one of the excitements for me of film was that it was not literature because as a, I had been a would-be novelist since the age of five. Uh, my father was a writer and I, I always assumed I would be a novelist and, and I was constantly finding myself um, uh, doing other people, uh, doing Burroughs, doing Nabokov, another influence. And uh, when I got to film, I was uh, free. I felt totally liberated. I felt, well, I could can invent my own art form because um, although, of course, I didn't, I have seen, you know, as much of filmmaking as I can. It wasn't the same relationship that I had to literature, so I felt quite free. And um, um, it's just only in retrospect, looking back and saying, well, yeah, I mean, I guess there's a lot of Burroughs there. But when I first read Burroughs, it was kind of more a shock of recognition. Someone much more mature, much more crazed, much more experienced in bizarre ways, who had crystallized things that I was only beginning to grope towards. But, you know, if you don't have a, uh, an affinity for viruses, reading Burroughs is not going to give you one, you know. Uh, and I, I guess I do, because uh, it, uh, so, so it's, it's, it's once again the, the question of influence and what it really feels like when you're doing your own work is a strange one. Uh, uh, people like De Palma talk about Hitchcock, and then, you know, in his, in his films he will actually reproduce this, this, you know, scenes in the Untouchables uh, from Eisenstein and so on, almost shot for shot, and that's that's to me that's very strange. I don't understand that at all because, uh, of course, you you don't come from nowhere. You are influenced, but uh, when you're doing your art, you you feel as though you are not influenced. It's it's it, you feel as though you're absolutely inventing it all, and I think that's the way it has. To, it should feel like that. You talked about the writing process as being um, unconscious, and your depiction of the writing process in Naked Lunch um, is, is of writing as almost something that comes up from the unconscious. Mm -hmm. And um, so I just want to know your, I'd like to know about your approach to when you finally decided to sit down and write the script for Naked Lunch. I mean, you came up with something that um, was very lin linear, uh, very different than the novel. 
did you try different approaches, mm -hmm. um, or did this? I know in interviews you've said that this seemed to flow right out when you yeah. finally decided to write it. Yeah. Well, yeah, it did. I mean, um, I'd been. You know, I met Burroughs at his 70th birthday party, and then I was at his 75th birthday party, and I still hadn't written a word. And we were kind of <laughs> saying, you know, it would be nice if William were alive to see this movie. So um, <laughs> write something, as they say in Anexia. And um, uh, I, Clive Barker was insane enough to offer me the third lead in his movie, um, Nightbreed, as an actor. And um, I told him he should get a real actor, but he was determined. So uh, it meant I was going to be in London for about two and a half months. And um, then I bought my first laptop and started to write Naked Lunch on the plane going over. And um, to my surprise, it just just was there. It was just there waiting. And it was as much like automatic writing. It was as much as, as being dictated to by your machine as, as, uh, as I've ever had. Now, this was a Toshiba 1200, so if you're interested, <laughs> you know. Um, I guess I could do an ad for Toshiba. I haven't thought of that. <laughs> Naked Lunch was there waiting. Um, but um, I think what happened was that I've been thinking about it for so long, and, and my, the extent of my collaboration with, with Burroughs was really to just phone him up or go see him and talk to him about strange sort of I even thought maybe irrelevant things just to get, I was kind of steeping myself in the, the Burroughsian aura, you know, and, and, and had gone to uh, Tangier with Jeremy Thomas and Burroughs in 1985, and he would, you know, point out where he had written Naked Lunch and had tea with Kerouac and God knows what else, and introduced us to Paul Bowles and other people who were still there. Um, and um, we talked all the time. And I would ask him things like, you know, so, you know, what about insects, Burroughs? You know, I mean, it's, it seems as though you always use insects in a negative way in your, in your descriptions. When you say someone has cold, blank insect eyes, it's always negative. You know, are, do you like insects? Are there any? And he said, I, I kind of like butterflies, he said. And uh, things like, you know, um, do you, so I know you believe in an afterlife, and does this mean that, that you are not afraid? to die. And he said, well, no, no, you could end up in the wrong company. And um, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> and uh, I suppose that in doing that, I was actually shaping my approach to the, to the film because I did talk to him about shooting his wife and, and uh, misogyny and things like that. And I, I think, and, and did he consider, uh, would he consider using biographical incidents in a fictionalized way to be a legitimate thing to, for me to do. And he said, absolutely. He didn't separate his life from his art. And he, in fact, thought of his books as one big, one big work. And uh, in other words, basically gave me blessings. This was blessings from the Pope of Interzone to go ahead and do what I had to do. And we talked about sexuality. And, and I said, you know, mine is different from yours. And uh, I don't know what that's going to mean to the movie and uh, I, I just don't want there to be any unpleasant surprises. He said, you know, just, it's, it's, your, it's your movie, do it. Um, finally, by the time, and, and there were one or two key issues, I think. One was drugs. I knew that, of course, there would be drugs in the film, but I, I decided, I think, quite at an early stage that I didn't want to, I wanted them to all be invented. Now, certainly there's a precedent for that in Naked Lunch. Uh, there are mugwumps who emit uh, uh, addictive fluids in burrows. There are the, there's the black meat of the uh, giant aquatic Brazilian centipede. 
but there, but the bug powder uh, w- was my invention, and uh, uh, except that he Burroughs wrote a short story, uh, well, really a memoir called Exterminator about his time as an exterminator in Chicago, and he some of the lines of dialogue in that scene from A. J. Cohen, the the you know you want I should spit that in your face, that's uh-huh. directly from Burroughs. That's maybe the most directly I've taken any dialogue was that first. Um, scene, which is not from Naked Lunch. We, in fact, there are things from Queer, Naked Lunch, and Interzone, which is kind of the outs of Naked Lunch. And uh, we actually had, in fact, contractual right to use those things, and uh, Burroughs, of course, had no objection. Um, I didn't want to use real drugs in the film because I didn't want people to be thinking of Nancy Reagan when they saw the movie, and I didn't want them to think about crack houses in the Bronx and and, uh, Colombian drug wars and that kind of thing. I wanted it all to reflect internally within the film and to have the references not be quite so topical. Um, And the result of all of this sort of meandering and pondering was finally that when I started to write, it just clicked right into place. And literally it was as though I was being dictated to. It was wonderful because I'm basically quite lazy and not a good typist even. So um, uh, that I hadn't, none of the other scripts that I've written worked quite that way, not quite that easily. And of course it was having the whole Barosian universe to play with that, that allowed a lot of that to happen. Since uh, there are, there's very few passages from the novel that literally appear verbatim in the, in the film, but is a, there are a few, and, and um, I mean, one is certainly when you're reading the novel. Um, there's a number of pa- a lot of passages that strike you as Cronenbergian, remind you of your films, mm-hmm. um, and certainly the one of the talking, uh, the talking anus, the passage about uh, that starts with Dr. Benway in the novel talking about how ineff- inefficient the human body is, mm-hmm. um, and he says instead of a mouth and an anus to get out of order, why not have one all-purpose hole to eat and eliminate, mm-hmm. and then then the um, story about the, the talking asshole. Yeah. Um, that seems to have, that has so many echoes to your other films. I'd just like to start talking about, mm-hmm. know what that means. You are the talking asshole. That's what you're saying. <laughs> um, what you're saying. But this is not actually an insult because, and I, and I have <laughs> proof, because what, what, I, what I do point out is that um, when people say, you know, why are the typewriters so disgusting and they have this orifice and they call it all kinds of things and we know it's an asshole. And they say, um, I say, well, you know, there is a structure to the film and by the end of the film you have the, the, the sort of talking asshole monologue which is taken basically word for word, word, for word from the novel. Um, and you realize, you're, to me, it's obvious that Burroughs is the talking asshole and that I am and that any artist is. And in fact, anybody who says things that society doesn't want to hear, that people don't want to hear, that's the, the, the hideous, repulsive orifice that is speaking and saying these things. And you stick candles up it and try and shut it up and it won't <laughs> shut up. And that's why I wanted the typewriter, which is basically kind of, you know, I don't want to get too Freudian about it because it isn't a Freudian structure, but he is an exterminator. He's exterminating a lot of parts of himself that he would rather not deal with, uh, his homosexuality, his, his art. And, uh, and so you can start to say, okay, though the cockroaches are uh, the unconscious thoughts coming out of the crevices of the unconscious, and then the typewriter, of course, is really the writer's unconscious. It's the, it, it's, it's, it's the writer talking to himself when he's talking to his typewriter. It pushes you around. You, t- you push yourself around. You, 
uh, aggravate yourself, provoke yourself. And so that's where all that imagery comes yeah. together. And it's, that's not, ex, you know, it's not a structure that's explicit in, in, in Naked Lunch, but uh, as soon as I realized, really to my surprise, that, that the movie was very much about writing and about the creative act and why should human beings have the impulse to do that and to invent characters and universes and concepts and stuff, um, uh, then all of that that I incorporated in the movie from, from Naked Lunch works beautifully with, with those concepts. Uh, there's the, this, the sort of falling hemorrhoid monologue, of course, is pretty directly from Naked Lunch, but I think it's actually a version that's in queer that I use. It's slightly different. Um, he, it burrows recycles, you know. And there's some other long pieces of, of, of uh, the incantations that, that Martin makes as a poet are also from Naked Lunch, actually. And they're quite beautiful and powerful. Take some questions from sure. the audience. And sure. Over, he over here. Well, it's it's a sort of a mixed blessing. I mean, uh, when I started to write my first movie as opposed to my first film, which I consider Stereo and Crimes of the Future are sort of films in the sort of underground art sense, and, and uh, Shivers, were, which is called They Came From Within Here, that was an AIP title, um, uh, was my first movie in the sense that it was a professional endeavor. I actually got paid to write it and direct it and so on and was working with other people, whereas the other films were not done that way. And um, uh, it was just very natural for me to, to work within the genre. It, it, it felt, once again, it wasn't calculated. Uh, in retrospect, it seemed like a good way to start. It, it, the thing is that the genre does protect you in some ways, and we've seen a lot of young uh, filmmakers... Uh, protected from their own ineptness and, and brashness and arrogance and so on, and I include myself in that, by the genre. It's, it kind of mothers you and because it's a, it's a known quantity and you can get away with murder in it and it's okay and you can make a lot of mistakes and the momentum of the genre itself can carry you as well. But I, it was luck. It wasn't calculation because it was... Um, I mean, I was always interested in science fiction and horror writing, uh, but when I came to movies, uh, I was interested in everything. I could have just as easily tried to make a Western, you know, as a horror film. But when I started to write, that was what, where I got the, the juice to do it. And, and, it, um, and, uh, and then, of course, your first encounters with the press and you blithely proclaim yourself the Baron of Blood, you know, a few other things like that. <laughs> and, and once again, this is the sword <laughs> you have given, which they plunge into every part of your body um, <laughs> because no matter what you do later you are the baron of blood you know you are the horror meister and it just doesn't matter what you do and you're stuck with it um, and you um, wh whereas in fact what the where it comes from for me has nothing to do with genre whatsoever I mean I'm just not aware of it or thinking about it it, it for me the question of genre is a critical problem or a marketing question you know, what is this film? How do we sell it? Who's the audience? But it has nothing to do with where the movies come from. Um, it's sort of after you say, well, okay, what is this? You know, I mean, what is Dead Ringers? I don't know what category you would put that film into. Or even The Dead Zone. Because it was called The Dead Zone, and Deborah Hill had done Halloween, and I had done what I had done, 
and Stephen King and so on, it was perceived as a horror f- film, in effect, sort of sold in- ineptly, I might say, by Paramount, uh, <laughs> not Fox, um, uh, as a, as a uh, kind of sci-fi hardware, I don't know what, it was very bizarre. And, uh, uh, and of course, it's none of those things, and the book wasn't that either, but, but it, it was the associations were so strong that it was almost impossible for people to, to see the movie for what it was until after a while, you know. And you hope the film lasts long enough so that the audience that might like it will, will find it. Uh, sometimes it's despite the advertising and sometimes not. Um, so I, after the dead zone, the people who, who did see the movie for what it was said, well, now it's mainstream and, and uh, you know, there are no effects in the film to speak of and it works more on an emotional level and, uh, and uh, there's no gore and there are none of these creatures and, you know. He's dropped the crutches. He can walk now. And then I did The Fly, you know, which was really a horror film with a lot of effects and a lot of gore. And it, it, I would have done The Fly before The Dead Zone or after, depending on when they had come together, or I would have done Dead Ringers before both of them if I had been able to get the financing together. So I, I'm not really thinking of, you know, as they like to say, the arc of my career, you know, that kind of stuff. Because it doesn't, it's just not where you make the movies from. It isn't for me anyway. It could, and I don't, I don't really think it is for anybody, but it, it might be. I mean, you might, if you weren't writing the things yourself, you might choose projects to prove a point that you can do a comedy or this or that. And I guess that's possible. And certainly actors do do that. Uh, but actors can make a lot more films than, than directors. So for me, it's it's just a, a project by project thing. And uh, uh, the, the vagaries of the business are such that you never know which of the things you're interested in will go first, will be possible first. And so you, you, it would be very hard to orchestrate your career in terms of starting within the genre and then gradually moving into the mainstream and then becoming an art filmmaker or whatever, however you wanted to do it. I, it would be incredibly difficult to really do that. Is that, is that an answer? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, over here. I don't think he sees a lot of movies, William. And in fact, he doesn't listen to a lot of music. I, I, I noticed that when I was at his place, he didn't have any means of playing music, um, and uh, which was interesting for, for me for this film because I, I was thinking of asking him for a list of his favorite tunes, you know. And um, and he, you know, he could talk about he could remember, you know, various uh, musicians that he had heard and so on. But I realized that truly he wasn't. It wasn't that important to him. And Nabokov also confessed he had no ear, that he, if he went to watch an orchestra, he would, he, he would literally watch it. He'd said he'd look at the lacquer glinting off the, you know, in the bow, but he wouldn't really hear anything. And I think Burroughs a bit like that. Music is not that important to him. And, and film, is, 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 he's excited by it when he comes in contact with it, but he doesn't really... He doesn't really have a huge cinema context that he can work out of. And uh, I think he, he really just saw one or two of my films. He saw Scanners, and, uh, and we showed him The Fly and stuff. But uh, I, I don't, when I first spoke to him, I'm sure that he hadn't seen anything that I'd done. And I, I really think it was more on a personal level that he started to have confidence that I could do the film. Um, and also because of Jeremy Thomas as a producer, you know, that we were both real, we were serious, we had done it before. Uh, and he'd been involved, been involved in, in a lot of very, you know, sort of iffy kind of uh, attempts to, to do things with his work. 
and he was always very amiable about that. I mean, whether it was rock groups or or writers, whatever. Um, but I think that's really the truth of it. Okay. Um, back the question back here. Oh, it's 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 vital. Um, uh, it's uh, if it's if it's if it's right, it can do so many things for a film, and it, and if it's wrong, it can absolutely destroy a film. I'm sure we've all seen films where the music just kept you out of the movie, and or or made you feel that you were being manipulated so obviously that you refused to respond, and it, and and if that happens, you're dead. Uh, and music, it's it's a very there's no there really are no rules. Uh, in fact, but and you can make up the, your use of music as you go along, or film by film. But um, and it's a question, even scene by scene. You know, do, will, is the music there to accentuate something that's already in the scene, or is it there to work in counterpoint against that, or is it there to suggest something that's going to happen that you wouldn't know f just from what's on the screen? I mean, there are many, many things that you can do. With music, and uh, um, uh, Howard Shore, who has done almost all the scores, except really except for the for the Dead Zone, uh, bec only because he wasn't available for that. Um, I send him the first draft of the script, and we start talking right away. And uh, it's such a, su a subjective thing. I mean, there are more fist fights happening in the sound mix than there are on the set. It's 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 little known actually. It's a, probably the most neglected element of filmmaking now that every, everything else is getting so much publicity, but. Uh, including editing, but very few people are aware of what goes on in a sound mix, uh, and and sound is a, probably more subjective than than anything visual. So it is really really quite subtle what you do with with uh, music. Um, in in this case, uh, how, you know, we say okay, well the obvious thing is jazz because they're hip, right? And and you know Charlie Parker, and then uh, yeah, but what about Bird? And what about okay if we treat music the way we're treating drugs, why we should really invent the music the way we invent the drugs. It's something that you can understand, but that is new for the film so that it reflects internally. And then North Africa. Of course, Interzone has a North African flavor where it's maybe a hallucinated version of it, but still, what about North Africa? And North African music is, in fact... Uh, African, not Arabic. It's very rhythmic and, and so on. Well, you know, if you were strictly doing Moroccan music, uh, you, it, you wouldn't have an Arabic influence. But, well, it would be nice to be able to use some Arabic. So, and then Howard said to me, well, you know, there is an instance of a combination of jazz and North African music, and that is uh, a recording that Ornette Coleman did with the Master Musicians of Jujuka in 1973. And I'll send that to you. And he did. And we, do, we did a temporary mix, a temp mix, which is done when you're starting to have some screenings for people to see how they're responding. And, and you know, even if you know you've made a film yourself, it's very distracting when there are dropouts in, in the dialogue and, and there's no music and no effects and so on. So you do a temp mix just to make the film a little more smoother. And also it gives you a chance to experiment with the music. And you begin to... to, to realize what problems you have and what things that you thought would work in theory. In fact, when you try them, they don't actually work. And you very often use pieces of scores from other movies uh, to, to, to try and get a feel for what would work. And in, in our case, we use a lot of stuff that Howard had written for Dead Ringers and 
for uh, A Kiss Before Dying, I think, the, the remake of that. And uh, But I, I we put Ornette's um, uh, stuff with the with the North African music exactly where it is here, which is when, when, when Bill Lee says, uh, I hear Interzone's really nice this time of year. And then you hear this incredible music, which is a combination of, it's Ornette actually playing. He went up to the mountains. These musicians are, it's really religious music for them. And he played with them and it was recorded. Uh, and it, to me, it sort of became the Interzone national anthem. It's very dissonant and very disturbing uh, very forceful, and um, it just works so well in the temp mix. And we did use some Charlie Parker tunes for all the source music. You know, when they come into the apartment, she's shooting up, and you would hear Charlie Parker. Um, and Howard said, "Well, you know, maybe I know Ornette. Maybe he'd be interested in in uh, in being involved in the movie." And we sent him a tape of the, the of the film with the temp mix. He was living in or he's traveling anyway. He was in Holland at the time. And he, he loved the movie. He completely related to it. And speaking about exiles and living outside America to comment on America, I mean, he, said, he said to him the movie was about being brilliant in America. And he wanted to be involved very much. So this was really a coup for us. I mean, we were very excited about it. But we didn't know how much he would be involved or what would work. And Howard wrote the opening and ending credit music with Ornette in mind, it was there for Ornette to be improvising over. And he actually he came to London. We were all in London. Uh, Ornette improvised with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. That was very interesting. Um, uh, Howard introduced Ornette to these uh, musicians, and some of them were very young, and it was obvious that they had not heard of Ornette Coleman. And, but they were very politely applauded. He said, ladies and gentlemen, Ornette Coleman, they applauded and tapped their bows and so on. And then, and then uh, Ornette has no music in front of him, you know, so this is already very strange. And then they're starting to play, and he just starts doing what he does. And, it, of course, it's wonderful. And it, it takes some takes, you know, for, for both the symphony to get it right and for Ornette to get it right. And after a few takes, um, a woman, when there was a break, a woman, a violinist came up to him. She said, uh, "Are you you're not, you're not playing with music?" And he said, uh, "No, I'm just kind of you know making it up." And she said, "Do you get jobs?" <laughs> <laughs> so we assumed that she didn't know who he was. Um, anyway, so this is what I, this is a long story, but it's basically to show you that there really are no rules. I mean, it happens very organically, and this happened very much towards the end of the filmmaking process. Sometimes you've got it right from the beginning. Uh, um, um, and and uh, it, it, as I say, what's exciting and why I, why I feel that it's very legitimate to work with the same people over and over again, which I like to do, uh, which is not really the Hollywood way because there's always somebody who's the hottest guy. You know, you have to have this cameraman. You have to have this composer. Um, I don't really think you get in a rut with by working with the same people because you're constantly changing uh and when you're a filmmaker when you're a director your 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 production designer your cameraman your composer go go off and do other movies while you're trying to get your next one together so they've they they have other experiences and get ch a chance to experiment and come back with fresh concepts and of course you've got the each movie is a unique universe not only you hope for the audience that sees it but it is for you when you make it so um uh, 
even working with the same people, every, it's always different and it's always exciting. And that, that applies to the music. I hope that's enough of an answer. <laughs> okay, down here. Yeah, I, I think um, I think video is a whole completely other thing, and I'm I'm really delighted about video. In fact, I've never shot a film in widescreen specifically because of video. I compose my films for both an uh, aspect ratio of one eight five. I actually use one seven five so that it'll work in Europe, which is one six six to one. That's the, the shape of the frame, and one eight five in North America, and it'll also work on on. Uh, TV without having to pan and scan or, or you know, alter the composition of the frame. Uh, video is always, I, I've always known that more people are going to see my movies on video right from the very beginning. And uh, it's, it's just, to me, it's a suicide to ignore that and say, well, I make my films for cinema and that's it. Uh, it's just not, it, it can't be true. And, uh, and certainly for films like Videodrome, ironically enough, which is very much about video, uh, it, it's it's almost entire life since it died after the first weekend, um, uh, but it's still alive. But it's alive on video, and I mean I talked to people who saw bootleg cassettes of it in Cuba and stuff like that, and that delighted me, you know, because of course it's it's getting seen, and yet it, there's no denying that the video experience is quite a different one. We would not have been able to make either Dead Ringers or Naked Lunch had it not been for video. Uh, pre-sales of video are a crucial element now in, in the making of any independent film. And it was the, the, the belief that both of those films would be very uh, attractive on video that got them financed. Uh, Naked Lunch, I, I, I might be doing Fox and Injustice here, but I, I don't think so. I think that they really felt that Naked Lunch was, was for video. And that's why they got the rights to it. And I think there might be pleasantly surprised right now by how well it, it seems to be doing in the in the few theaters that it's been running so far um, and and so it, it it's video is so present for any filmmaker now that as I say you can't ignore it but it is a different experience so sometimes when people say I, I want to see your films but they're too scary or they're too this or they're too that I say well you know wait till it's out on tape and then watch it because it's you have more control, you know you can fast forward, you can stop, um, you can walk out of the room uh, without feeling feeling guilty and embarrassing yourself, <laughs> and um, um, and uh, and I, I I really think and of course it has in some ways a lesser impact on on uh, TV, but not always. Um, I've I've I've. I always seem to use a lot of close-ups, and I've stake, my films seem to be quite claustrophobic. And that isn't because of video. That's just because of my own nervous system and my understanding of composition and my feeling that the human face is really what cinema is all about. In fact, talking heads is what movies are all about to me, really. And um, so they, they work well. They tend to work well on video. But if you've ever watched a film you know, with a tape with headphones on at night, 3 in the morning, it can be very. It can be a very intense experience, quite different from a theater, uh, but very intense. Maybe more intense in some ways, in an internal way. So, um, you know, to me, video is the freedom of the image. I mean, can you? Im I, I can't imagine now not having access to film the way we do now. But it wasn't that long ago that you just didn't. A film came for a couple of weeks and it was gone forever. And I saw movies before TV, believe it or not. 
And uh, that was the way it was. I mean, it, you had a memory of it. You had some stills, maybe. That was it. It was gone. So it, it really, oddly enough and bizarrely enough, brings movies around to being more like literature because you have a bookshelf, you know, except it's a video shelf. You could take your favorite video down. You can fast forward to your favorite scene the way you might do it with a book and reread it, look at it again, analyze it, fast forward through those parts that you really hate or are boring. Um, and I think that's great. I, I mean, I, it's all more involvement, and I, 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 you know, I embrace it. Okay, right here. No. I don't waste time on characters who aren't on screen. <laughs> and I know that some people do, and certainly there are novelists who do that. Uh, and, and, you know, you do whatever works for you. But I really, I really wanted them to be kind of almost parentless and, and uh, uh, almost a, a product of their own will. And uh, I didn't want to get into that stuff, although it's incredibly fascinating. And, and certainly the, the, the young boys who, who played the, the twins as, as children uh, had parents who were there all the time. And, uh, and, and then the relationship between them and us it was fascinating. But it was really uh, something I didn't want to get into. I, there was no room in the film to deal with it. And I think part of making a film successful is to just accept that the limitations of the form, you know, it's, it's, I mean, I think it was, yes, it was George Bernard Shaw who said, you know, the, well, when someone said, well, how long should a play be? He said, well, an act can be no longer than the capacity of the, the, of the human bladder. I mean, that's really what determines how long an act can be. So I, I think um, uh, we, you know, you have to accept the limitations of the form and work within it. And, and I, really, I was not prepared to deal with that element in, in Dead Ringers. And I, I do notice that generally I don't deal with that. Uh, it's sort of in retrospect. It's just for some reason, I, I don't know why, what would happen if I did. But I normally don't deal specifically with, with those elements of child-parent relationships. I'm not sure why. <laughs> okay. Tom? I'm, I'm sure, and I, I don't know for sure if it's true, that originally there was a plan to do this after the sequence. Yes, that's true. And I'm curious about the change of deciding to do it if I'm not mistaken, they're shot in Toronto. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly given um, Bertolucci shooting the Paul Bowles Children's Sky location, uh, the difference of having a cancer experience in Canadian sun rather than a. Mm -hmm. There was no sun whatsoever. That's Canada, you know. Well, um, yes, it's true that we, we originally. Uh, in our, our schedule was set up to shoot at the end of it uh, for, I think, a couple of weeks in Tangier. And we had, I had, in fact, was on Bertolucci's set for The Sheltering Sky because Jeremy Thomas also produced that, and that was in a perfect sort of uh, opportunity for me to, to see what a production in Tangier would be like, what would be the problems, and so on. Um, and then three days before we started to shoot, the Gulf War broke out, we could see it coming, but, you know, you sort of hope that it's not going to happen. And it wasn't 
so much. I mean, they were saying, you know, all foreigners should probably get out of Tangier because, of course, there, there was a fundamentalist element in Morocco as well, which the king tries to suppress, but, you know, who knows. And um, mainly, though, we couldn't get insurance. Uh, even if everybody on the crew and cast had been willing to fly to North Africa, we couldn't get insurance for the production, which would mean that our contracts would be invalid, which would mean we'd have no financing. So it was really the insurance companies who decided it. Um, and I was depressed for a day because, of course, we had we'd done a location survey aside from the sheltering sky experience that I had. And we, had, we were always going to build the interiors in Toronto, but when somebody opens a door and you see outside the door, you have to build a bit of what's out there. So we had taken measurements and, and videotapes and photos and everything, a lot of, of Tangier, and we're very prepared to, to, to shoot there. Um, and then I started to look at the script uh, the weekend before we started to shoot, and I realized it, that we never should have been going to Tangier. We were really seduced by the reality of Burroughs having written the book there and through kind of mass hypnosis had all assumed that we must shoot something in Tangier to connect with that. Uh, and, but when I looked at the script with a very cold eye, I realized, of course, that interzone is always a state of mind and that technically he's probably never left New York. In fact, he probably hasn't left his apartment. And that, that I was being forced by circumstances to take that one final step which would use that rather than just have it be there. And that's, why, that's when we started to blend the Tangier stuff with the, or the interzone stuff really more correctly. For example, when Hank and Martin come back to his apartment, it's really a combination of his his interzone apartment and, and his New York apartment. And sometimes outside a window you'll see Central Park and sometimes you'll see uh, Tangier and, and sometimes you'll see, you know, tenements. Uh, and that all came into the film afterwards, after we couldn't go to Tangier. Although, as I say, the concept was there begging to be used, you know. So, but, you know, so when I when I presented the rewritten script to, to Jeremy and, you know, everybody was kind of saying, oh, sure, it's better, yeah, yeah. You know, they kind of, you're rationalizing it because you have no choice. It was better and it was obvious to everybody, every actor, every everybody, that it was just that final step. It was that last draft that should have been written before and, and was finally. And, of course, my production people were incredibly excited because it's, it's much more of a challenge to build the CASBA than to go and shoot in it, although I'm sure that's a challenge too. Um, so that's that is that's really the way it happened. Can you speak a little bit about uh, working with Jeremy Irons and uh, the process of devising the film Well, sure. Uh, Jeremy Irons and Dead Ringers. I'm tr going to try and remember now. Um, uh, I mean, basically, the the reason that I had so much trouble getting someone to do that role was first of all gynecology. No American actor could get. Well, I won't say none. Uh, I, I went to 30 of the best American actors. The names would astound you. And most of them could not get past the third page because there was gynecology. Now, this is interesting, don't you think? Um, and the other thing that scared them was uh, schizophrenia. They were afraid of the role. And you'd think that any actor would want to be on screen by himself with himself. That is a dream, <laughs> dream role. And Jeremy was very upfront about that. Uh, but in fact, the, the, the thing that this script demanded was not what most twin scripts demanded. And there are a lot of twin scripts around. I mean, 
also I went to 40 pitch meetings for, for Dead Ringers and uh, couldn't sell the movie. And I, that's why I ended up producing it myself. And uh, they would say, we've got a twin script right here we'd be happy to do, but please not that one. You know, couldn't they be lawyers? Things like that. <laughs> do they have to both die? Um, and and uh, so it wasn't the fact of twins. It was the fact that they were real twins. Uh, and twins t love this movie because they have never seen themselves on screen before for real. Because almost inevitably, a twin script is about a crazed, psychotic killer twin and a good, wonderful twin. It's, it's good and evil, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, and this movie didn't give an actor that shtick to fall back on. This movie was two real people who, who were very much like each other, but not identical and very subtly different. And that was going to be really hard to play. And I think uh, one very famous actor said to me that he would have to drive himself over the edge of madness to play this role. And people who knew him said it was not a long trip. But <laughs> I never got to find out, so I don't know. Um, anyway, Jeremy was the... F then I, I, I mean, I had to have an actor who spoke English as his first language. You know, this to me was important because the dialogue was important and that was the, the role. Uh, Jeremy was the first English actor that I went to. And he was the first actor who said, I'm very interested in this. I want to meet you and talk to you about it. Um, I don't know how he did it, you know. Uh, uh, I, I do know that he used some physical tricks to psych into the role. And by the end of the shoot, we would be whipping a minute out of Beverly and Elliot instantly. You know, there was no, like, we'll do one day of Beverly and one day of Elliot. It's impossible to do that. Um, he would... Uh, so he, he, he developed small physical things that he did. For example, for Beverly... He would stand weighted uh, on his heels and, and slump a bit. And it, it just immediately just that posture and a few hair things would put him into Beverly. And, and then Elliot would stand f with the weight on the balls of his feet more aggressively and that would change his posture and he would immediately become Elliot. You know, now, I don't know. Uh, I didn't have to do that in Nightbreed, so I didn't ever figure that out. But... Um, I, it was, for me, it was hard to figure out how to drink a cup of coffee and say a line of dialogue at the same time. That was very tricky, <laughs> believe me. So, um, and then the way, the way I work with an actor is very collaborative, not in the sense of improvising dialogue, because I don't do that. Uh, uh, you know, I, I take a long time with the script, and I want to do it that way, unless there's some line that really doesn't feel right, and the actor just can't make it feel, play. But um, in terms of the, the way we choreograph the scenes and our understanding of the way the scenes play, it's very collaborative. You're, you're really, it's, it's, uh, it's constant little adjustments and fine tunings. And it's, it, we'd have to get very specific about a scene, you know. But uh, uh, because you work out the, the basic strokes of it in, I don't really do rehearsals. I, I don't, it just doesn't interest me to do that. I do it on the day. And... Um, I mean, if there are problems that the, that the actor has with the scene, understanding it or believing that it works, then, of course, you talk about it up front. But um, basically, uh, the way the day begins, I have to do it this way, I'm afraid. You know, you, I clear the set of everybody except the script person who will feed you lines if you forget them, and, uh, and myself and the actors. And we start to block the scene as though it's a play. I mean, we really start to say, well, should where you'd be sitting and saying that line, and then you get up to the window, and then you pause, and then you turn, and then you say, you know, you start to do that. 
and then um, work out the, the entire scene that way as a little playlet. Then you call all the crew on and uh, play, run it again for them, and also for the stand-ins who have to walk it while you're lighting and so on. And then I'll talk to various people. The sound man will say, this is going to be very hard to boom. Uh, maybe we have to use radio mics. The, the uh, cinematographer will say, uh, I'm worried about when you have them go up to the window. Wouldn't, maybe it would be better if you went over here visually. And you, you, and you try to integrate that into the dramatics and so on. Um, so, but at that, during that time, that's when you have the, the actors have you as a director there. And that's when it happens. That's when you really create the scene from an acting point of view. And then I start to work with everybody else to get the get it to work cinematically. And it's very rare that I have such a specific visual idea that I subordinate everything to that. You know, that I know I'm going to do this long dolly shot, so he has to be standing there, and I don't care if he feels like he should be over at the piano. He has to be there. I don't usually do that. Um, and then while you're shooting, you find other things. And it's all minor adjustments and movements and, and different things happen in the wide shot than they do in the close-up. So it's very, very difficult for me to be more specific. You could, I could certainly analyze what might have happened during a specific scene that way. But uh, I, I can't really be much more specific, specific than that. The question I have for you is, in an interview you gave in a book that you had, uh, about uh, you were in the program. Yes, yes. You mentioned that... Uh, well, uh, it's interesting about original scripts. I mean, um, there's this, it, it, I know it might seem unbelievable, but it really all feels the same to me. Um, to write the script for Naked Lunch, uh, it, it, when I was starting and and being you know very much auteurist in my in my aspirations, I really uh, felt that you know you must do everything original and and all of that. And I I still do think that the, my writing is one of my main strengths as a director. But there are many ways that that expresses itself, and um, in a way it almost doesn't matter where the basics come from, the material that you start with, whether it is in fact a dream or somebody else's dream or somebody's book or uh, a story that someone told you or a story that you read in the New York Times. So um, I myself am not particularly obsessed with that. Um, and as I say, I mean, Naked Lunch, writing Naked Lunch felt as satisfying to me as writing Videodrome, maybe more because uh, I had more time to do it and rewrite it than I did with Videodrome. So um, I am working on a couple of scripts now. One is an original, but it's based on um, the lives of some real people. And in a sense, at the moment, it looks as though they're going to still have those names when, when the movie comes out, well, when, I, when the script is written. Um, another one uh, is uh, an adaptation of uh, J.G. Ballard's book, Crash. And, um, you know, to, I mean, that is like a dream I had. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I mean, will there be one where I, that isn't technically based on something else? Uh, at the moment, I'm not working on one that's like that exactly. Uh, as I say, I'm, I'm actually working on a, a, a script about racing cars.
Well, that's better than the Baron of Blood. That's good. That's good. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, any, any other questions? Okay, uh, right here. Yeah. Well, I don't really think of it that way at all. And I, and I actually don't think I'm obsessed at all. You know? <laughs> uh, I, I don't think of myself as an obsessive person. Um, not truly. I know some truly obsessive people, and I don't feel that the way it works with me is quite that. But, um, no, actually, I, my crazed doctors and scientists are my heroes, really. I like them. And... Um, <laughs> They are the, they're my artists. I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm talking about artists, writers, and sculptors, and, and sometimes they're the scientists. But really, I think I, I, they're just doing an extreme version of what I think we all do, which is to, to try to invent the world for ourselves and to try to interpret it and to try to gain some control over it. So um, I know this is – I mean, I'm, I, that's the way it feels to me. And um, – I think that they're exhilarating to watch, even though they might be insane and might be, you know, veering towards destruction all the time. I think that, uh, that they're, you know, that's what you want to watch, and I know that. And so, in that sense, they're my heroes because it's what they do and how extreme they are that starts to illuminate things in the film. Um, so I don't really think of myself as anti-medical or anti-scientific. I mean, I think that. It's innate in human nature to do those things, to not be satisfied with the way things are, to not be satisfied with things as basic as a human body. We've been re re redesigning ourselves from the beginning. I mean, we've never been, we don't, we've never accepted sitting in the middle of the field or a forest the way monkeys do. You know, we, 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 you know, we built, we built our own world, our own environment, and we're building our own bodies. Uh, and so, in that maybe slightly perverse sense, they are my heroes. And um, um, certainly in terms of the dynamics of the film, they are my heroes. So I, I, I'm not really, you know, we could get into, do you know, what do you trust doctors and lawyers? And that's a whole other question. Okay. Over here. Um, well, that's a few questions. Um, I, I don't really think about my reputation when I'm writing. Uh, you really try to divest yourself of all of those considerations because uh, of your career, of how you will be perceived, how the critics will perceive you, uh, whether they'll think you're doing something that's retrograde, whether you're going to be hammered by the feminist right wing or the gay activist left wing. Uh, you, you've got to get rid of all that stuff. You can't worry about it um, for many reasons. Um, the primary one being that if you do that, you will paralyze yourself before you set down a word. You, you just don't have enough time to consider all those kind of variables, which are really not calculable anyway. The other thing is that you never know which movie that you're trying to make is actually going to go when. So you can't you know, talk, you can't talk in advance about the arc of your career or anything like that because, for example, I would have made Dead Ringers in 1981 if I could have got the financing together. Uh, and uh, 
that would have shuffled the deck, really, in terms of critical appraisal of your chronology. After I did uh, The Dead Zone, uh, critics were saying, well, not just critics, you know, now he's entering the mainstream and no more special effects, and this is a very emotional film, and it's rural instead of urban, and, you know, all that stuff. All of it was true, except that then I made The Fly, you know, right after it. <laughs> and that, so... Um, and, and then after Dead Ringers, which was actually was an effects film, but not visibly, um, and was considered by people to be, I suppose, more realistic, whatever that is. Yeah. No, no, but you see, a lot of people didn't consider The Dead Zone a horror film, and I don't either. But, but the other thing is that um, those kind of categories are really uh, a critical problem or a marketing problem. But they're not a creative problem. I mean, you just—it's—it's it's irrelevant when you're doing the thing, whether it's a horror film or a quasi-horror film or a science fiction horror film. Or, I mean, that's completely irrelevant. You don't draw any shape from that or any energy from that. It really doesn't do anything for w the way you're working. So, um, it's not something that's part of the creative process. And it's only after the fact that you start to see that the fact that it's difficult to figure out how to sell the movie, for example, because uh, your last film was a horror film and it did well. So do you mention The Fly when you're trying to sell Dead Ringers? You know, that's the kind of problem it is. But it's not a creative problem. And, and, it, and uh, you, you sort of are, after the fact, you get analytical about things that you were, in fact, only intuitive about while you were doing it. The, the insect typewriters are my invention. Thank you. Well, I, I have to say that Burroughs himself loved and wanted to take them home off the set. And, uh, and, and he does have a mugwump in his bedroom, I can tell you that. And um, uh, it's tied up, though. It's okay. And, um, and uh, said that he thought any writer could relate to, to those typewriters, which was a huge compliment. And, and I must say that Burroughs was totally supportive and uh, very easy about the making of the film. I mean, he always, as he's written in the preface to the, there's a book, The Making of Naked Lunch as well, which is not out yet, but it will be in about a week. And in, in a preface that he's written, he's, he, he mentions a story about Ra Raymond Chandler when people said, you know, isn't it, aren't you appalled at, at, at the things that Hollywood has done to your books? And he said, well, Hollywood hasn't done anything to my books. They're right there on the shelf. And I think that's really Burroughs' uh, approach. His, his work is his work, and nothing that I could do would ever change it, really. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the William Tell routine and the, and the killing of Joan, um, until I started to write the, the screenplay, I wasn't really sure how I was going to approach doing the book. And I really avoided it for many years. You know, I was at Burroughs' 70th birthday party, and then I was at his 75th birthday party. I still hadn't written a word. And we thought, well, you know, if, if William is going to see this movie, maybe we better start doing something. But I was, in fact, gathering... Um, keystones or, or, or points of reference, almost unconsciously, I think. And I was really struck by the preface that he wrote to the book Queer. And we had the rights, really, to, to use Queer Interzone, which is kind of the outs of, of uh, Naked Lunch, um, and uh, um, Exterminator, which was a, a group of short pieces the, the title one being his uh, sort of a short memoir of his time as an exterminator in Chicago. And um, 
In the preface to Queer, he says that at a certain point in his life, he was forced to come to the appalling conclusion, he says, that had it not been for the shooting death of his wife, Joan, he would not have become a writer. And that, that really just struck me with incredible force. And I knew that I had to have that in the film in a, in a very fictionalized way. Uh, and I wasn't sure why. And in a sense, uh, when I make a film, I'm really making the film to find out why I want to make it. I absolutely am not sure why I want to make it until it's finished. And even then, it takes some time to settle in. And I think that's what gives me the drive to continue through all the agony that you do go through. And there, there, there's fun, too, but, I mean, it, it's tough. Uh, it's, it's, it's to find out why you are obsessed. No, I won't use that word. To find out why you, why you are focused on, on, on that particular project. I, people said, why do you want to make this story about you know the twin gynecologists, they end up dead. I tried to, as, um, we pitched that to about 40, out of f literally 40 or more meetings in, in Hollywood. And you can go back to the same office again, you know, because next week is all new executives. So... Uh, <laughs> And, and, and you also run into the situation where you go into an office and they say, yeah, when I was at TriStar, you know, I was a minor executive and I, I loved your project and I, I just couldn't do anything. I didn't have the power. Now let's do it again. And so you say, here it is. It's about these twin gynecologists. And, you know, they, they end up sort of dead. It's great. And then they say, um, let, we'll get back to you. And then you go the next day, they said, no. <laughs> well, I have the power this time. No. So, uh, 40 meetings, and, and yet I have to say that one of the difficulties, it was really partly my fault because I couldn't tell the story in the way, well, you can't tell the movie. And in particular, I can't tell the movie because I haven't written it. I hadn't written it at that point because you kind of want the studio to pay you while you're writing it so you can survive. And um, after they see the movie, they say, oh, right, now I see what you meant. But I can't give them the movie before I make it. And, and the main reason is because I don't know quite what it is on that very basic level. Um, I didn't know un until I really got into writing the script of Naked Lunch that it was, my version of it was about writing. That, that it was, I, had, I went back to Burroughs to get to the root of the, of, of the need to be creative. Uh, the, the human need that's unique as far as I know on Earth and maybe in the universe to invent characters to recreate things in a different way, to try to bring chaos, uh, order out of chaos, to, to give meaning to things that might, you suspect, be meaningless, that, that kind of thing. And, and so the film, in a way, became a meditation on writing, uh, using the Barosian example, I suppose, is what it is. And uh, I, I, that's, that's basically how, it, how that happened. Okay, uh, back there. Uh, have you found any differences in uh, audiences or critics' perceptions of the film in Canada as opposed to the U.S.? Or is, it, is there something distinct about the American experience? Well, in terms of the response to the film, it's a little early to say because I've, it's only just opened in Canada uh, on, the t uh, on the 10th, really. It, it played in five theaters in the U.S. early, just in order for it to qualify the, for the uh, Academy Awards. This was, uh, we'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> a little optimistic, but why not? And then, um, uh, so I, I really can't talk specifically about the difference in, in reaction because the, the um, uh, Canadian 
reaction is just happening this weekend, and I'm not there, so I don't know. I mean, we got three good reviews in in uh, in the three main Toronto papers, but uh, they were very different in their approaches. And you know, you can get a good review that you think is not so smart, and that puts you in a very strange place because you want a good review, but it's and and what you fear, of course, is an intelligent bad review. You really hope you won't <laughs> get one of those. And so far, I haven't had any of those, but uh, it's possible. I know it's possible. Um, uh, now, what was the other part? Yeah, well, censorship is a huge issue, and maybe I can only say that I really think that as, a, as an artist, and I, I, I guess this really Nabokov said it, and I think he was right, that you have no social responsibility as an artist. You must not censor. You cannot self-censor, and you must fight to, to not have any of your work censored, and I think that's absolutely true. Uh, there is a strange uneasy relationship always between society and art. It's inevitable. I mean, I think part of it is because art's primary appeal is to the unconscious. I, I'm, I'm not speaking in strictly Freudian terms, but it's, it's good enough. And society, as in one of the Freudian formulas, this is also a gross simplification, but, you know, civilization is repression. That's, that's one of the formulas. So if art appeals to the unconsciousness, but civilization is repression, you get a very strange... Uh, a relationship between the two. And so censorship will never go away. It's an unending process. I mean, it will never go away. There will always be an element, a, a desire to repress or censor uh, f coming out of a culture, any culture. There's not a culture in the world that has zero censorship. No, there's no studio. There is no studio involved here. This is this is a, this is an independent film that's being distributed in the U.S. by Fox, but that's it. Uh, this is not a studio picture. Uh, it's an independent film produced by Jeremy Thomas, and believe me, he he paid the price in blood, uh, which which I don't think we we really it was never. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, imagine this if you want a few laughs going into, you know, the head of Fox and putting Naked Lunch, slapping it down on the table and say, "Read this, and I'll get back to you tomorrow." You know, we're going to talk about the movie. Well, that would be fun. Uh, <laughs> you, it's, it's just not a project that could ever have come out of a, uh, uh, an American studio. It's just not possible. Uh, and it is a bit of a miracle that a major studio is distributing it. But on the other hand, it's, they got a really good deal. You know, they know that, I mean, they, they've, they've already made money on the video aspect of it. And the fact that it seems to be doing okay at the box office in the limited release that it has is just kind of a surprise to them, I think. Uh, so it's a, it's a, you know, once again, that, that, that to me is the basic structure of, of, of those things. Okay, right here. I think that the bizarre and maybe somewhat unacceptable truth is that there is no single reality. You know, we, we structure it. I mean, it, it comes out of our biochemistry and then it comes out of the culture that we're born into. And then we get these little intimations that it's not an absolute at all. That, in fact, I mean, it's, it's really quite variable and changeable. And uh, you can change reality through in, in many ways. But, I mean, if you imagine that we were, our, our biochemistry was such that we had an organ that secreted LSD, uh, which is, to me, quite a possibility. You know, it's, it's, I can imagine a creature like that. Uh, 
we would could could still function quite well, but it would be a totally different reality completely. I mean, in terms of time and space and color and shape and and tactility and everything. I mean, it would be completely completely alien reality, and it's very possible. And so. Um, Bill Lee, I mean, I can give you a quick little sketch of the structure. You know, th this is me being a critic, you understand, and I might not be very good at it uh, because, once again, I'm, it, it's not what I do. I don't sketch this on a pad when I'm trying to figure out how to do the film. It's, I work through intuition, and when the things feel as though they're clicking into place, you have confidence that later they will be able to be subjected to a sort of intellectual analysis, and it'll still work, but you, you're never really sure. Uh, if Billy is an exterminator and he is exterminating some elements of his own makeup, his homosexuality, his creativity, because he's afraid, because they leave him vulnerable, because in the 50s those things were not particularly acceptable to the official reality of the times and he didn't want to f expend the energy to fight against that. And there, there is some biographical truth there. Uh, I'll just mention that that although Burroughs and Ginsburg were sort of considered the hippest of the hip, or maybe in retrospect were, they bought the official reality of the Eisenhower era enough that they both considered their homosexuality to be uh, curable diseases, curable by psychoanalysis, possibly by drugs. You know, it took a long time before that understanding of that was, was considered archaic and maybe laughable. But even they wrote about it to each other and talked about it. And Ginsburg, in particular, tried very hard to, to turn himself into a heterosexual. Very hard. So, um, but here he's an exterminator. And, of course, if you get into Freudian uh, symbology, you get, you know, these things, these kind of, to me, not repulsive, but to most people, repulsive, these, in fact, Madagascar cockroaches, which are really about that long. And uh, quite pretty, really, but... You, you, they they are the, you know, what comes up from the dark crevices of the mind but the unconscious thoughts, the unconscious desires which we repress. So there's Bill Lee trying to exterminate them. And that's why uh, his typewriter, his typing machine, when it becomes the means of delivering back to him these, the things of his unconsciousness, should take the form of, a, of an insect. And so that's why the typewriter also has a talking asshole, you know. And um, in a way that's, Bill Lee talking to himself. So is it not reality? Has he lost touch with reality? No, I think he's very much in touch with reality. It's just a, a different version of it, a different level of it. Uh, and then what he does is, he, with it, he creates uh, a place, interzone, where everyone recognizes him for what he is. They're all saying, you know, you could jump into bed with this guy, you could jump into bed with that guy. And he's saying, why? Why are you saying these things to me? You know, I'm not a homosexual. And they're saying, yeah, you could write this report with that machine and write that. And he's saying, well, you know, I'm just writing reports. I mean, I'm not really a writer. So he's actually created a place where he must be what he should be. And to, that's basically my structure. You basically the way he's used to survive. Yes. Yes. How well is the film doing? Because <laughs> he's from L.A., that's Bob. Uh, I'm actually not sure. All I can tell you, I haven't gotten the figures for this weekend because it's not over yet, but um, it, it, I was uh, speaking of horror films and the box office and so on. Um, a horror film traditionally drops 37% the second weekend. <laughs> 
And and uh, so it sort of suggests that most people who want to see a horror film come out for the first weekend. And uh, then it kind of trails off. And each weekend after that, or each week, it, it, it drops quite a lot. So that's why often, you know, Friday the 13th uh, sequel will be in 2,000 theaters because you, you, you hit them hard and then you're gone, you know. Uh, but uh, Naked Lunch only dropped 1% from the first weekend to the second. Now, that's only in five theaters, but I've never had a film that held like that. So if, if that's any indication, then it, it could be a very interesting experiment because we, we really are releasing this film in very few theaters. So uh, that it could work very well. So the, the auguries are good, Bob. They're good. <laughs> trust, me, trust me on this. No, it, but it, sometimes it's not a question of how it's being sold. Um, uh, it's it's people's perception of it is often it, 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 the way the film is sold is not necessarily the way it's perceived. Uh, the Dead Zone, for example, was because it was not a horror film at all, and not really even a science fiction film. But because Deborah Hill had worked on it, and she was well known for Halloween, and I worked on it, and uh, it was a Stephen King book as the basis of it, it was perceived as a horror film, and that's, that's really how it acted, even though it wasn't quite sold that way either. So sometimes it, there's a disjoint between the two. Okay, over here. Well, it's, 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 it's strange. I mean, I just came from seeing Dennis Potter's film, Secret Friends, and Dennis was there, and he was an absolute wreck. And it didn't matter whether people said they loved his film or kind of just didn't talk to him. He was still a wreck, and and although externally I'm not shaky like he was, uh, it's it's a strange thing, you know. I mean, you of course you want this. I mean, you want people to love what you're doing, but it's a, it, it's a, it's very strange. I haven't figured it out yet. And and there are enough strange and negative things that happen that keep you balanced, you know. I, I'm not likely to get unbalanced because uh, we have had some bad reviews for it from some quite definitely negative reviews and so it's not as though it's all positive you know um, and and every screening maybe not here but um, every screening had there are walkouts which does not always happen even if people don't like your film they're not they don't leave now I haven't had the the experience that I really want to have which is to sit with a with a paying audience at a at a kind of normal theater not in a museum situation um, uh, and, and an audience that doesn't know I'm there and, and that owes me nothing and that will, you know, if they hate the film, will know that. You know, I haven't had that experience with this film yet because I had to leave to come here when it opened in Toronto. Normally I'd be there Friday night sitting, you know, squenched down, sweating really a lot <laughs> uh, in a theater. And, and uh, uh, I need that experience because I can't really respond to the film myself anymore. You see, I have to do it vicariously through the audience because, of course, every cut, every moment in the film has a huge history for me. And I can't really see it. There comes a time when you would, well, most of the time, especially, of course, when you're editing, you would give anything to be able to erase the history of the film from your mind and walk in and see it cold like a, a normal audience, just to have that objectivity and that clarity. But you never, ever get that. So you, you, you do tricks to try and you know, give yourself as, as much of that as you can. Um, and you're wary even about people telling you that they like the film, you know, because you, you, you can get awfully picky. It's like, but did you like it the right way, you know? And, and that's completely unfair. And in fact, it's ridiculous because, um, 
at the same time, you know that your response to the film is so totally subjective. It's like it's like music, really, in a way. Finally, it's it's so subjective that it's almost beyond articulation. And when you read reviews, you you're looking for that one review. And I do read them. I mean, if it's a really horrible one, then it's too masochistic to read, you know. But if it's if it's not totally horrible, you'll read it, especially the first thirty or forty. By the time you've had two or three hundred, and your film has gone on to to be in forty countries, sort of you. You, you just don't care what anybody thinks anymore because you've got to be working on your next film. But, uh, and you sort of pray for that after a while, to, to just be that uh, insensitive to it. But um, you, you look for a review that's really, really intelligent and, and uh, profound in the sense that it gets to the heart of something that actually you didn't get to yourself. Because a, a good critic actually can tell you something about your film that's true that you couldn't articulate yourself. And it's ex incredibly exciting, and it's quite emotional when, when you connect with a review like that. Um, I haven't seen one like that yet for Naked Lunch. But it, it's hard for a reviewer as opposed to a critic, someone who has to sort of write for a paper, limited space, quick response. As for a film as complex as Naked Lunch, I mean, they can only deal with one element of it. Most of them choose to deal with Burroughs a bit, you know, and, and, uh, by, and then... By the end of the review, they're just sort of mentioning things, but they can't really deal with them. So I'm still waiting for that one. Okay, right back there. I don't have... Uh, I, I mean, I, there are a lot of directors that are... I, I don't have a favorite director or two or three. I really don't. Um, I love you know, Fellini and Godard and... Uh, Bergman were all very important to me. And uh, the reason that I mention uh, three European directors is simply I was raised on Hollywood stuff. You know, I used to see Hopalong Cassidy and the Durango Kid and Burt Lancaster pirate movies and loved them all and was very exhilarated by them and, and obviously very uh, influenced by them in the sense that they delivered to me my understanding of what movies could be. Uh, but I didn't never thought of films as art with a capital A until I, well, I could tell you exactly when it, that happened. I was I used to go to a, a theater in Toronto called the Pylon, and a, and we would that was before television, believe it or not. We used to all walk to every Saturday. It would be like lemmings going to the ocean to jump in, you know. We would be streaming the kids streaming towards this these cinemas. And uh, you'd meet your friends along the way, and you'd stop off at various shops along the way to buy, you know, gum or something. And you'd go to see a movie. And um, across the street, now where I lived, where I grew up in Toronto, there was a big Italian population because it was a sort of an immigrant section of town. And uh, that wave of immigration was it was Italian. So there was an Italian cinema across the street called the Studio, which only showed Italian films in Italian, not no subtitles. And I remember coming out of the pylon and seeing a, 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 a people coming out of the studio. And when I looked, I saw that they were men and women, but mostly men, and they were crying coming out of the, out of the theater. And I couldn't believe it. I could, I, the, the, the thought that a film could make a grown man cry was astonishing to me. I remember crossing the road to look to see what the film was, and it was Fellini's film La Strada. And uh, that really struck me and, and uh, said to me, you know, that film can be something besides Hoplon Cassidy, much as that was great. So um, the influences on me are, are enormous, but in that sense, you know, they're, they're so diffuse. It's, it's uh, 
I couldn't really point. I've, I've not been haunted by one filmmaker the way uh, De Palma says he is by Hitchcock or, or you know whatever. It's it's. I don't have that feeling that there is one filmmaker looking over my shoulder saying, no no that's the camera should go a little lower. You know, uh, it's not like that. Okay, in the first row, and then. Well, um, Crash, I haven't written a... Well, no, that's not true. I've written... I've written a few words on Crash, actually. Uh, um, Jeremy Thomas and I have bought an option that's been going on for some time uh, of the, for the book. And I've met Ballard a couple of times, most recently, just about two, two weeks ago in London. I was there doing publicity for, for Naked Lunch. And um, I don't know what's going to happen with that. I mean, we at the moment... Uh, we understand from our experience with Naked Lunch that I have to write the script. Then Jeremy needs about half a year to a year to raise the money for it based on the script because we cannot just show someone the book. It won't work. Same thing as, as uh, Naked Lunch, basically. I mean, it's a different book, but it's it's rough. And if you're a producer, you you know you can't just show somebody that. So, uh, And I don't know what my approach will be. Um, you have an enormous problem it's not a problem. I mean, it's just in the nature of it. Uh, books and film are diff completely different. And things that are incredibly easy to do in a book, uh, inner monologues and the use of metaphor, uh, are impossible, really, on film. They just don't work the same way. So a lot of what I do with effects in Naked Lunch is my version of metaphor. It's not an, an attempt, for example, that the fact that I give all the good sex to the rubber in Naked Lunch is not to avoid, and, and none to the actors, is not to avoid um, censorship, but to try to reproduce that metaphorical thing that happens in Burroughs when you read all this bizarre sex, which is not pornographic because it's doing a whole bunch of stuff, but if you had your lead actors on screen doing it, it would be probably legitimately considered pornographic, and uh, and it would... And I'm, I'm, not, I'm talking from an aesthetic point of view now, not, not uh, a sensorial one. It, therefore, it would not be doing the right thing for your film. So it's those kind of interpretive things are what you deal with, what I deal with when I'm, I'm working with uh, a book, which I've only done twice. And, of course, The Dead Zone was quite a different thing in, in many ways, but had similar problems. I don't know what I'm going to do with Crash. I mean, in a sense, you'd say, well, it's more, e it's, it's more likely to be a movie because it does have characters that continue all the way through, which, which I do feel the need of. And it does have a narrative of sorts, but it has a lot of other things that you, you just, there's, you know, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I really don't. So uh, that's where that is right now. Okay. Um, we can just have time for one more question. So I called on you already. In Videodrome, yeah. Well, there was a lot of discussion between myself and the producers on Videodrome, but the structure there is quite is it's, it's different from Naked Lunch. In Videodrome, I'm presenting a character who who it's a first-person film in in a 
total way. So that I, I just decided that I was going to be very rigorous about it, even though I knew it was a little suicidal. Uh, in that, as my character's reality changed, uh, so too would the reality of the movie and the reality that was there for the audience. And I was not going to uh, show anybody else's version of it because that was the only version there was. In this, in the same way that if if your own reality were changing, shifting. Uh, that would be all you have. Where, but um, I mean, I could make up. Uh, you know, what what would a, a passerby see when Max Wren is doing this? You know, and I could. It, you know, I thought of those things, but I, d I never bothered to schematically work it out because it it was irrelevant basically. Uh, in Naked Lunch, it's different because there's a sense that the that w Bill Lee is on a very real level conscious of the fact that he is creating his own reality, first with drugs and then with his art. And he knows, there is a sense, I wanted to suggest that it's not just the audience who knew, knows what's going on, it's also Bill Lee who knows what's going on. And yet he is willful enough and, and, and focused enough to continue continue that despite the fact that it's dangerous so that's that's why I gave little hints of some outside reality in uh, Naked Lunch and didn't in Videodrome, a different sort of project that way yeah Yes, true. <laughs> Fortunately, not with other people's films, though. Oh, yeah, um, but I was wondering, I, I, when you said earlier you thought you writing for strength, I There are tricks you can do, and one of the tricks is that you surround yourself with really talented people uh, so that they can compensate for your own weaknesses. And, they, and if you work with them enough, and they become friendly, you can actually confess to them that you just don't know what the fuck you're doing. Will you please help me? But, I mean, that's, that's a joke, but it's not a joke. You know, uh, it, 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 um, if one of the fascinating things about making a film is that it is, so, it is so complex. I mean, it does draw on every part of you uh, because it draws on the social part as well and on the, the sort of temperament part and on the dealing with a lot of people part and dealing with yourself in the way that writing does. It, it's, and dealing with the economy. I mean, uh, I had to produce Dead Ringers because nobody else would do it. And uh, I had to deal with all that stuff that really bores me and I hate. But I had to do it. So instead of taking a nap at lunchtime, which is what I do to, to, to maintain my sanity, uh, I had to get on the phone and try to find out why the French deal fell apart. <laughs> Where's the French distribution deal? Where's that money? Um, and um, so it is so, it's, it's impossible to be good at every aspect of film. I really do believe it's impossible to be at, on a level of real excellence on every level. But if you're shrewd and clever, then it's like Muhammad Ali, you know. So you don't have a punch, okay. But you can, you know, you invent rope-a-dope. I mean, I often feel that I'm <laughs> on the ropes and I'm getting pummeled. But, you know, the ropes are they're giving me a bit of help. So um, you, you, and one way to deal with that is to find people that you can trust, who you can work with, who understand it, and who 
have that sense of, of whatever, if, if it's a sense of style, if it's a sense of color, if it's a, whatever you feel that, and it might vary from film to film. I mean, something that you felt really on top of on one film, you, you feel is, is you, you just don't have the, the maximum on another film. And you find somebody to help you. That's really what, what you do. Thanks a lot to David Cronenberg. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.